0: Lord, we thank you for your broken body and your shed blood, part of the purpose and the plan of God to bring us enemies back into a relationship with you, to restore us, to redeem us, to heal us and cause us to walk with you. Or may we always live, as the song said, with a view of who you are and what you've done for us. We praise you, Lord, because you have been so, so good to us. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Folks, good morning. Submerge and Kingdom Kids are going to leave us for their program. Um, and if you, in your Bible, if you have one this morning, turn it on or open it up to First Samuel chapter 1. As they do that, that would be super. It's going to be up on the, the screen, but it would be great if you turn to it with me. That would be super Shalom everyone. <laughs> I've only been away five days. It was as if I had been away for weeks on end but I hadn't. Left for Israel um, last Monday morning, early in the morning and traveled from Dublin to Istanbul, Istanbul to Tel Aviv and then in a coach um, down to Tiberias. So it was a bit of a journey but it was amazing. We went away with a few different pastors and leaders from um, different movements and a guy from Church of Ireland and um, a guy from the Presbyterian Church up um, way up country, um, he was there with us as well. And then the rest of us were a number of elam pastors, and David Legg was also there, who used to be the pastor of the Iron Hall, but now has an itinerant ministry. Um, really great guy. So we had a really lovely time. Edward Michael led us, and we had a, a tour guide out there, uh, a Dutch um, Jewish lady who was nearly 70, but um, walked at a speed, you would have thought she was in her 20s. She was amazing, and so she gave us the details as we traveled around. And I don't know if you you might be interested, you might not, you might even, none of you might be here, Um, but over the next few weeks, I would love at some stage during one of the services, just to give you a bit of a a picture um, show, it sounds a bit old-fashioned, show you a few pictures and, and show you some of the sites that we went to, some amazing Um, insights that for somebody like me who who preaches and teaches to be able to see some of those places really helps get an understanding of the life that Jesus had, where he traveled, what he did, and all things like that. So had a really great time. Thank you for your prayers. Um, Our travel was um, just amazing. It went so smoothly it would, you would not have believed. Just in, in one plane, out onto the next one, transfers, no problem. Luggage, no problem. It was really, really great. So made the most of our time early in the morning, late home at night, um, and we had, we had great conversation as well along the way. So we're, we're starting a series this morning in the, the book of First Samuel. The book of First Samuel is quite a, a, a lengthy book, so we're not going to spend as much detail um, as we are this morning, as we look at some of the, the overview of it every week. But there are books in the Bible. Every book is important. Every passage, every phrase, every word is important because it's God's word. But there are books and in the Bible that are key to understanding the bigger picture. First Samuel is one such book. And I, I would encourage you, if you have never really got into God's word and really read in a deep way, um, start with Genesis, read it. And then read 1 Samuel as well. It's really, really important. And Exodus, books like that, they, they really give us a grounding in what we're going to move on to next. A lot of us have been brought up in a, a culture where the person at the front told us what the Bible said, what to believe, and we took a lot of this stuff for granted. And our Christianity, to a large degree, are based on chapters and phrases and words but actually, if we're going to be people who walk in all that God has for us, we need to be people who understand the bigger picture of the Word of God, not just promise box Christians who have a few favorite passages and a few favorite verses, and we just stick to those because when we do that, we kind of go off, off the rails a wee bit. But when we understand the big picture, then everything makes sense in relation to to one another. Does that okay? Is that fair enough? You don't feel too bad. Ready to go home already. Um But it's really important that we understand the big picture of God's word. This book is essential in understanding concepts like the kingdom of Israel, kingship in general, leadership, sacrifice, what it means to walk in a faithful way before God. And we Pentecostals love this. It teaches us about what the presence of God actually is, how you relate to God as a person, what it means when he dwells in your midst. Phrases like that we'll see within this book that will help us understand the bigger picture. Um, Samuel, we know Samuel, we know the name, we know the character, but Samuel, it's most likely that he was the one who gave the information for this book to be recorded So the majority of the book, apart from his death and what comes after, is down to Samuel. We don't know who filled in the gaps along the way, but we know that Samuel had a a key role in having this information here. It is an account of the time between the judges We know that the judges was a dark time whenever leaders rose up in Israel as they tried to take possession of the promised land. They were struggling. They had come out of Egypt. They had wandered in the wilderness. Joshua had taken them over the Jordan River into the promised land, but they were struggling as to how that was going to work. They were fighting their enemies, but then they were turning away from God, and then their enemies were defeating them, and then God was raising up a leader, people like Samson in that time, where they fought back and Gideon, and he fought back and gave the land some peace, gave the people some peace, but then they went back into a downward spiral again. The book of Samuel comes after that period, and it's kind of paving the way for what will come next. The book of Judges throughout it has this key phrase that the people did that which was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. If you've ever read the book of Judges, that's a phrase that's repeated three times. It says there was no king in Israel at that time. And the people, everyone, did that which was right in their own eyes. So the author of Judges is trying to point towards the time when there will be a king. And 1 Samuel is the account of how that king comes to be the king in Israel. It's showing how dark things are and it's bringing us into a hopeful rule of the good king within Israel. Now, up until the time of Samuel, God had been the physical king of the nation. Whenever God called Moses to go and tell the people of Israel to come out of Egypt and to let my people go that they may worship me, all of that, at that time, throughout that whole duration, God was their king. So they worshiped God, they followed God, they listened to God, they did what God said. But in the time of the judges, people just went their own way. And then in the time of Samuel, that we're gonna discover over the next few weeks, we see a different pattern emerge where the people ask for a king. They want a physical, visible person to lead them. And they don't wanna be led by God directly any longer. And we'll discover why that is as well. So the backdrop, Israel is struggling to take possession of the land. Everyone is doing what they want to do. There's no common direction. The nation is struggling. They're failing. They've come out of slavery, but they're not really experiencing all that God has for them. And that's the context of where we start our reading this morning. If you have the patience to do this, I would encourage you to do it. Keep your Bible open for the duration of this morning. So keep it open, because what we're going to do this morning, which is a wee bit different, we are going to go through the passage a few verses at a time, and then we're going to comment on what has just been, and then move on to the next passage, okay? I think we're going to put it up on the screen as well, if you haven't got a Bible with you. So let's read the first couple of verses of First Samuel chapter 1. It said, there was a certain man from Ramah, or Ramathame, depending on your translation, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Joraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. Now, there'll be a test on that in a few weeks. Make sure you remember that. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none so we start here at the very beginning of this book and we're talking about a man called elkanah and elkanah's lineage or history is written down for us so it's likely that elkanah was a person of a bit of status because his family line is important hannah and penina hannah means grace or favor and penina means pearl or precious stone okay so this is the situation he has a family history that means he's important his family line is a big deal and if you look at his family line and follow it back to where he comes from it's very interesting I'll leave you to do that but he also has two wives I don't want to offend anyone here but he's a rich man because he can support two women in his life that's a reality Didn't have two wives if you didn't have the finances for it. So the fact that he had a family line to turn back to, he also had two wives to support. It's likely that this man, Elkanah, I'm looking across the room, seeing all the women who love band shoes, and they're all laughing. He had two wives. Now, in that culture, to have two wives, it was the most common occurrence when one of those women couldn't bear children and couldn't have an heir. So he had a family history. He wanted an heir to carry on that line. And he loves Hannah. She's his favorite. So it's likely that Hannah was his first wife. She couldn't have children. And then Peninnah was brought into that situation so that she could be the one through whom the family line would continue. That was a common thing in those days. It sounds horrible to us, but there are some stories that we know of in Scripture that this was the same thing that happened there. Anyone think of anyone else? Come on. Abraham, Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. There's situations in Scripture we see this repeated. So this is this man's family history. Let's read in verse 3. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests to the Lord. Year after year, this man went up to the place where God was worshipped, year after year. This meant that he was a good man. He was a devout man. He made this journey. And being in Israel, it was really interesting to see how long this journey would have took. It wasn't an easy one. It wasn't down the road to Kulkevi. It was a bit of a journey. You had to have a real heart for God to make this journey year after year. And the place that he went to was a place called Shiloh. Now, Shiloh is a very interesting place because when the people of Israel traveled throughout the wilderness and made their journey into the promised land under General Joshua, the first place they set up as a center of worship to God was at Shiloh. The temple that they set up there, wasn't really a temple, it was kind of like a semi-permanent structure. It was basically the big tent that they had been carrying throughout the wilderness, set up at Shiloh, because that was where they crossed over into the promised land. This was that Shiloh. This was the place where God was honored, God was worshiped, and people, the people of God all over the land would make their journey here to Shiloh. The priest there, the high priest, was a man called Eli, You'll know Eli's name. It's significant. We hear about a few Eli's in Scripture and Elijah's and Elisha's, but this was the first key priest when they entered into the promised land and and he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They never ever, I was going to say never call your children by these names because they weren't very nice. And that's a bit of an understatement. They were horrible priests. They were awful men who abused their power They gave their father an absolute headache. He was the priest trying to do what was right, trying to lead the people in worship. But these two boys were rascals, to put it lightly. And we'll discover more about them when we look at the scripture next week. But that's who's there. Eli's the high priest. Hopna and Phinehas are the two either side of him. And they're bad boys They're supposed to be serving God, helping people worship God, but they're not doing that at all. But we'll look at them again. Now let's read from verse four as well. Are you okay? You with me still? I know there's a wee bit of history here. I know there's a wee bit of backdrop, but it it will be worth it, okay? Let's lay down a foundation for where we're going so we understand where we are. Verse four, whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, Why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Elkanah loves Hannah the most. As I said earlier, it was likely that Hannah was his first wife, but she couldn't have children. And then this other lady, Peninnah, was brought in. Now we know of another story that we mentioned earlier of a similar occasion when this was the case, Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. And just just putting this out, it's never a good idea to play favourites with wives <laughs> or children. Not that any of you have two wives, hopefully, in here, but it's not a good idea to play favourites within the family. Always leads to disaster. And we know when Jesus in the New Testament talks about serving two masters, that gets tricky too. When the love of your heart is divided, it leads to trouble. And this is what's going on in this complicated family. This lady, Hannah, was in a painful situation. And I won't be really sensitive here this morning, but unless you have been in a, a situation like this, you're going to find it difficult to understand the pain that this lady was in. Whenever there's children and the birth of children and having children involved, it can be a really, really painful thing. It's difficult for us to even understand. And Scripture shines a light on this situation. This lady, Hannah, wants to have children with the husband that she loves and loves her, but she can't. And this other lady who's come in is making fun of her for that. It's laughing at her. Year after year, this goes on. And Hannah is brokenhearted. In fact, it gets to the stage where she can't even eat. I don't know your situation. And I want to be sensitive here this morning. But if you are walking through a journey like this, when there's something in your life that's incredibly painful and everyone else around you is enjoying the way life is, I just want you to know that God sees every detail of that situation, that he can know exactly what's going on in your heart, even if the people around you don't even give you the sympathy that you're due. God sees and God knows and God can see into the depths of your pain. Scripture gives us an insight into this This. Terrible situation, but there's a phrase here. And I hope the Lord's not listening. I wish it wasn't there. Verse 6. It says that the Lord had closed her womb. Now this is a difficult one. And we touched on this last week when we talked last Sunday night about the ways of God being higher above anything that we can even understand. His wisdom, the way in which he works in a fallen world is beyond our grasp. And I want to say, first of all, there are mysteries, there are struggles, there are ways in which God works that I do not understand. There are ways in which God works that I do not like. I say that extremely reverently, but there are things that I see happening in our world and in the lives of people that I love that break my heart, and I wish I had an answer for them, but I don't. But here we see that the sovereign hand of God in this lady's life is for her to be where she is at this point in time. Now, if you wanna ask about the origins of evil and how brokenness came into the world, you can ask Thomas afterwards, but I don't have an answer. There are things that happened to us that in our Western world, we have become so accustomed to blaming the devil for everything. That was the devil. That's the forces of darkness doing that, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's through the supreme purpose of God that he is doing something that we can't understand. And in this situation, the Bible, which is the inspired word of God, attributes Hannah not being able to have children to God. Now you can take that up with him. Why was that? What is going on there? Why is my loved one sick? Why have I had to walk through this pain? And sometimes there is a dark force at work, but we must remember as people of God that our God is sovereign. He is sovereign over some of the things, no, over all of the things. So that's a phrase that's difficult, but it flies in the face of our health, wealth, prosperity, nonsense that we are fed on a regular basis that anything good is from God, anything difficult is from the devil. It's not the case, folks. God does some things that we struggle with. Job knew that better than anybody. Job knew that God's hand in his situation and and his hand in the story that Jamie talked about a few weeks ago in the story of Ruth, that the sovereign hand of God was working through it all. The Joseph story that we quote from Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for the good to those for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. When you read the Joseph story, Joseph says, first of all, before he says that God has worked everything out, he says, God actually sent me ahead of you to save this nation. So it was God who sent me here, not you. Now, if I had been in prison, wrongfully accused, sold by my brothers, living a miserable existence when I had all these great dreams. I would have struggled to say that, but Joseph doesn't. He says, don't worry, brothers, this was God. God sent me here because he had a purpose. I'm paraphrasing it, but read that in Genesis. But this is what we have in Scripture. And I would encourage you, if you're listening to teaching that's telling you that anything difficult comes from the the devil and anything good comes from God, and it's like this cosmic struggle between good and evil... Just get rid of it because it's not biblical Christianity or biblical truth. Johnny Vance read this morning from Isaiah 53 the most horrible event in human history, the most unjust, the most brutal, the most cruel. But who ordained that it came about? God. God. I'll leave that with you. And then here we have Elkanah. Here's a lesson in how not to do pastoral care. Elkanah says to his wife, who's brokenhearted, who won't even eat because of the pain that she's going through, why are you weeping? Do I not help me more to you than 10 sons? Short answer, Elkanah, no, you don't. (laughs) You don't. Nothing could ease this woman's pain. And here's her silly husband thinking that her getting a double plate of food is going to solve the problem in her heart. But folks, this is what we're like. People walk in through these doors broken, hurting, struggling with grief, struggling with real, real pain. And we've got pat answers and easy solutions for them. Like, sure, come on, come to the meeting, you'll be all right, things will be okay when they're struggling with immense grief. The best form of pastoral care that I know how to do is to sit with people when they're in pain. Don't need to say anything because there's things that we don't have the answers for. Ask for God's wisdom and God's grace to help us, but Jesus was great at coming alongside people who had suffered a great deal and just sit with them. That's what he was really good at. No silly answers, no easy way outs, but just to be present. It makes a massive difference, but Elkanah, Year after year, he doesn't get this. He thinks that a bit of extra food and things will be okay, Hannah, but she is in deep, deep pain. But let's get to verse nine. It says, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. I love this part of the story because there's a bit of a contrast here in the text between Eli the high priest, who should have never been sitting, sitting at the door, and Hannah, the woman in agony and pain, standing up. And there's a bit of a thing here going on. I don't know if Hannah had come to the temple every year. I don't know what her regular journey was like. I don't know what went on. But this occasion where the light of Scripture is shining a light into the situation, you have Eli, the high priest, sitting at the door, and you have Hannah, the woman in pain, standing up. And I don't know if this was a moment where she went, I'm just going to I'm just going to pray here to God. Now, it wasn't a common thing for females to stand in the house of God and pray. This was a bit of a rare occasion that comes about. It's usually just the men who had that privilege of going here and standing in the presence of God before the priests and lifting up their voice. But on this occasion, Hannah does it. She stands up. In deep anguish, she prays to God. And I want to ask you this morning, because I've been sensitive and I've been talking about pain, been talking about heartbreak, been talking about trouble that might be in your life. But I want to ask you, where do you go whenever pain strikes and hits your life? Where do you go? Is it Facebook? Is it your girls, friends, or the lads who you know? Do you go to them first? Here was a woman in deep pain who went to God, who looked beyond the priest who was sitting on his backside and the husband who didn't understand and the friends who had no wisdom of what to say and she pushed through to God. She opened up her heart. She reached out in her deep pain and she prayed to God, where do you go? I would encourage you to go there first. She had been here many times before presumably because this other woman is here and she has kids. I wonder if she prayed many times. I don't know. But I know that on this occasion she stood up. And it's almost as if she put her foot down. She says, I'm going to reach out to God. Don't know what the priest is going to say. Don't know what my husband's going to say. If he's going to say, what are you even bothering with that for? Might not more to you than 10 sons. But it doesn't matter to her. Hannah stands up and breaks through. In something, There's a moment here of breakthrough for Hannah. It says in verse nine, once when they had finished eating, sorry, it's not verse nine, we've got through that, verse 12. Um, she made, makes this vow and she says, Lord, if you will look on me and remember me and give me a son, I'll give him back to you is basically what she says. That's her vow. When Jesus in the New Testament talks about fulfilling your vows, that's what he's referring to. It was common. And we've probably made vows in prayer, don't know if you've ever said, "God, if you'll answer this prayer, I'll do X, Y, and Z." Anyone ever done that? Fulfill your vows to God. If you've made an agreement and you've said, "God, if you will answer this prayer, if you will allow me to get the healthcare I need in order so that I can get back out to church, I'll I will serve you with my whole heart." And the common thing to happen in those situations is that once that happens, then we just forget about it. But in Old Testament History, when somebody made a vow to God, they kept it. They really understood that the person to which they were praying was real and that when He moved on their behalf, they were going to do what they said they would do. And we know in the story, we know what happens next. We'll not spoil it, but we know what happens next. Hannah is a woman who's true to her word. We should be people who are true to ours. Because when we pray, this isn't about luck or chance, this is about us coming before a person who can change everything. And when he does, we need to give him the honor that he's due and do what we have told him we will do, whatever that is. So don't make vows presumptuously or quickly. Verse 12, as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him she said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. It's a lovely, lovely section here, but it shines a bit of a negative light upon the priest. It's like he's never seen someone praying like this before. He's never seen a person pouring out their heart in deep anguish and not moving their lips. And he's surprised. He's like, He has no idea that this woman is in pain who comes here every year, comes here every year with her husband Elkanah and this other woman Peninnah who makes fun of her because she can't have children and the high priest is sitting there year after year and he has no idea what she's going through. And when she starts to pray, he's a bit shocked. Now we know that in the New Testament, we are all a kingdom of priests. We're all chosen. I would encourage you, And warn you, don't overlook other people's pain. Don't just go, it's just about me and mine. As long as I'm okay with God, everyone else can just do their own thing. We have become far too individualistic in our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. We love to know the date and the hour that God saved us as individuals, but don't forget about others around you. Don't forget that there are people who are sitting beside you week after week who are in extreme pain, who need you to see them. Not just say I'll pray for you, but actually see what they're going through. The priest of God at Shiloh didn't even know that this woman was in deep, deep anguish and pain. And that's a challenge to me as a pastor, but should be a challenge to you too, as representatives of Jesus, who was filled with compassion, who never missed anyone, who never overlooked people who were in pain, but was moved by their own struggle. Eli sits at the temple door, watches this woman pray and then complains because he thinks she's drunk. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a drunk person doing this, muttering, lips are moving, but they're not making a lot of sound, they're not making a lot of sense. It's something that can sometimes happen and that's what Eli thinks she's doing because it would have been common for in the temple courts, even for there to be wine, for there to be a sacrifice, for there to be a time of feasting and it wouldn't be uncommon for people to have a bit too much to drink. There was no breathalyzers back then. There was no units of a sensible amount. And he thought that this woman had had too much to drink and was just coming in and being a before God because he had missed the reality of who she was and where she was from. And he blames her and he has a go at her for reaching out to God. Often in our Christian lives, folks, we get misunderstood. We're misunderstood for our relationship with God, the things that we say, the things that we wanna see, the things that we believe in. But the important thing is that we don't give up. Whether the whole world sees us as crazy or not is irrelevant. What, what it matters most is if we're actually making a connection with God. That's what matters most in it all. In our desire to be relevant, to be understandable, And all of those good things to the world around us, don't forget that our primary call is to connect with God, our Father. And this woman was willing to endure the mockery of the highest form of God's ordained priesthood in the land at that time to break through to God. Imagine if she'd went, oh, I'm so sorry, sir. I'm just gonna leave here. I'm gonna forget about everything. I'm really sorry to have offended you. But she doesn't. She goes, not so, my Lord. Not so, basically what she was saying was, you're wrong, Eli. You've got it wrong. I'm here because I'm reaching out to God. And Eli kind of, okay, may you be given the, the, the request that you've asked for. That's what he says, go in peace and may God grant you your request. He gets it. He's a bit embarrassed, but he gets it. Wonder if we could be as bold in our conversations when people say to us, you're wrong for following that path. You're wrong that God doesn't do that and He doesn't want that and He doesn't believe and, and all of those things. I wonder if we could have that spirit that Hannah had and said, Not so. We're here to meet with God. We want to follow God. I love this woman's courage. Yep. I would love this woman's courage. We could all take a leaf from Hannah's book when it comes to boldness and reaching out to God and, re- and forgetting about what those people are saying around us. God comes first. We can often be too quick to judge. After she prays this prayer, it says, then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Here's another part of prayer. A lot of us are good at having lists, bringing those lists to God. A lot of us have a lot of things we want prayer for and I, boy, I have so many things that I pray about, pray for, people, situations, all of that, and have lists and lists and lists, and that's all great. But there's a key part of prayer that we often overlook. When we pray and leave a situation with God, we should leave it with God. Hannah did not get pregnant before she left this place. She prayed the prayer and she went away and ate in believing that the God who she had prayed to had actually heard what she said. And she went away, she had something to eat and her face was no longer downcast. I hear a lot of Christians that pray And they're exactly the same going out as what they were when they came in. And they can pray the prayer and say the stuff, but folks, when we're told to cast our cares upon him, that means that we actually have to let go of those things. We actually have to show our faith that we believe God because we go away and we're different. Sometimes you meet some people coming into the prayer meeting uh, on a Wednesday night, hypothetically, obviously. It's not, this isn't a real life example. But you meet some people coming in and you ask them, do you know what's going on in your life? What's, what has you done? What are you going to pray about? And they pray the prayer and you hear the prayer being prayed and then they go out and you ask them on the way out and it's exactly the same. We need to learn to be people. When we pray to a living God, he hears us. And when he hears us, we leave that with him. He's not hard of hearing. He's not like the the God that the prophets of Baal prayed to, that there needs to be a screaming and a yelling and a cutting and and a begging. He's our Father. And He knows exactly even what we need before we even ask. The asking is for our benefit. The asking is part of the casting. When we actually say it, we need to leave it with Him. And of course, there are times to pray and pray again. And all of that sort of stuff. But, but you know what I mean? Leave it with them and go on your way and don't let your face be downcast anymore. That was Hannah's example. We're coming to a close in just a moment. Read in verse 19. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord. They went back to their home, Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying, because I have asked him from the Lord. I love that. The Lord remembered her. The Lord remembered her. A woman that other people seen as insignificant. A woman that was being mocked and ridiculed. A woman that was even misunderstood by the priest of God in that place, a woman who was in deep pain, who thought that no one else knew, the Lord remembered her. In a simple prayer that she prayed, when she stood up, cried out to God, the Lord remembered her. I don't know if you're in here today and you feel that you've been forgotten. Maybe by family, friends, the culture, seems to be going on around you. Maybe things haven't worked out as you have planned. Maybe you've walked through extreme pain in recent times. Whatever your situation at the moment is, I want you to know that the Lord remembers you. You're not forgotten. You're not left by the wayside. The purposes of God in your life, whether you realize it or not, are still as real and are still as true as they ever have been. God is weaving his purpose through your life and will bring about his purpose in your life. He has not forgotten you. Some people in here today need to know that. Maybe need to keep using that phrase even this week. I love that God remembers of us long even after we have forgotten our prayer. We pray loads of stuff over the course of our life maybe prayed prayers 20 years ago that we have long forgotten about, but God hasn't. He hasn't forgotten the things that have been said. Take heart that God has heard your cries. He has seen your life and he still does wherever your situation may be. And at the end of it all, that's what's most important, that the Lord sees us, that he remembers, even if other people don't. This story and that's all the passages that we're, going to, or all the passage we're going to look at this morning. But this story that begins that we, what we have looked at today grows into something massively significant for the people of God and also the purposes of God in this land. The boy that comes from this answered prayer will go on to be one of the men that lives long in the history of Israel, Samuel, an honorable man, who stood both as judge and priest and leader in a very, very difficult time. But it all starts here. It starts with a certain man and his wives. It starts with a couple struggling to have a baby. It starts with a woman's prayer. And this epic narrative that will unfold, that we'll look at some of it over the next few weeks, starts here in very difficult situations, starts here, in a woman's struggle, starts here with a woman's prayer, starts in these moments. God responds and the rest is history. Very, very important history. But this is where it all begins. And this was the thought I wanted to leave us with today.